Today's guest is the one and only Stephen Bradbury, a four-time Olympian who etched his name in history as Australia's first ever Winter Olympic medalist, securing the bronze in the 5,000-metre relay at Lillehammer. However, it was his iconic gold at the 1,000-metre event at the Salt Lake City Olympics that led to the popularisation of the phrase, doing a Bradbury. Whether on the ice or behind the podium, Bradbury's extraordinary tale of triumph against the odds continues to captivate and inspire. Bradbury's accolades extend beyond the arena, earning the Don Award for Australia's Best Sporting Performance and the Order of Australia Medal for his contributions to Australian sport. Beyond the ice, Bradbury has showcased resilience as a participant on the Australian TV show Survivor, and post-retirement, he has seamlessly transitioned into sports commentary and motivational speaking, and he's been an on-air host and commentator for the last five Winter Olympic Games. With over 1,350 appearances at conferences around the world, Bradbury has become one of the most sought-after motivational speakers. In today's episode, Bradbury shares a unique blend of humour and inspiration. Listeners are in for a treat as Bradbury imparts valuable lessons on passion, persistence, and the relentless determination required in the journey to success. I just know you're going to love this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it for you. Hello and welcome. My name is Steph Prem and I'm your host for Mindful Mess, a podcast where we speak with some of Australia's favourite sporting, health and business personalities about how they find balance in today's world. Mindful Mess is proudly sponsored by Medibank. You're only human and what an incredible human you are. Stephen Bradbury, welcome to Mindful Mess. Mindful mess, that's a good name, Steph. Did you think of that yourself? <laughs> see what I did there? <laughs> uh, good to see you, Steph. Are you well? It's always good to see you. I'm very well, thank you, and very honoured to have you on our first season of Mindful Mess. You have uh, achieved so much in your life or something that only a small handful of people have achieved in their lifetime, which is the Olympics. That's just not one time but four times. So I want to start today with... Not the obvious, but you describing or telling us about your favourite Olympic memory, triumph, or career highlight. Oh, yeah. Well, cool. Thanks for not going for the obvious trade off the bat. I've kind of spoken about that race a fair bit over the last 20 years. But No. <laughs> one of the uh, biggest highlights for me in my skating career was something that it made the news in Australia for about five seconds. So in, in short track speed skating, to qualify the relay team for the Olympics, you have to make the top eight teams in the world. And so, you know, I was part of the team that got the bronze medal back in Lillehammer, which was Australia's first winter medal. And leading into Salt Lake, you know, it was a whole new team and a lot of younger guys. I was the definitely the veteran of my fourth Olympics and I really needed a relay team with me to have a chance in the individual events because you can't train and pull all the laps by yourself in the lead up to an Olympic Games. And if you can make the top eight, you know, you're an outside shot there to pick up a medal in the relay as well. And in the Olympic qualifying competition, I kind of invented this strategy. It's called the double push. I don't know if you've seen much short track relay, but a skater skates in from the inside and then the other skater gives them a shove, pushes their, pushing them on their bum as hard as they can. But after you've pushed, you've still got I have always wished you could do that in border cross. <laughs> <laughs> in my old sport, but unfortunately not, not allowed the push. I'm very jealous of that move. Well, you've got to get back up the hill. 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> in the what's the one where you do the the man and the woman? What's that one called now in snowboard cross? Oh, the team Big event. Event. The yeah. team event. Yeah, maybe they've got to go back up on the chair and then give them a shove. Maybe that could be you and I <laughs> could make our comeback. I'm a bit heavier than I used to be. I probably have good momentum on the down. <laughs> but, yeah, so after you've pushed another skater, you've still got about 40%, 50% of your speed. And all anyone else used to do was just go into the middle, slow down, and wait for your next turn to come around and go back in and, and get pushed by the guy on the track. But instead of doing that, we, we cut across use the momentum that skater still had to push the other guy who was in the middle waiting his turn so that he didn't have to accelerate as much because you've got seven changes over a 5,000-metre relay. Wow. It was a a strategy that no one has ever done since. No one picked up on it, and it's probably worth about three seconds over a a 5,000-metre relay. And that strategy enabled us to qualify for the Winter Olympics in the relay for Salt Lake City. And uh, the three of them were the only people, I think, in that grandstand cheering for us, and they went absolutely nuts. And, you know, for myself and Andrew McNee, Mark McNee, Stephen Lee, we were the Acacia Ridge club side from Brisbane. And we got into the top eight in the world, and we finished sixth at the Olympics in the relay. And without those guys there, I wouldn't have got the gold medal. So for me... Arguably the biggest highlight in my skating career was getting that relay team through to Salt Lake City. That's amazing. And they're the moments that people don't really know about, but sometimes they mean more more to you inside than anyone sees externally. Yeah, you know, and it's a it's a bonding moment myself and those boys have that we share for the rest of our lives. You know, we raced in that qualifying race against uh the French, the Brits and Ukraine. Ukraine weren't really a shot, but the French and the Brits were only worried about each other. They thought they were going to smash us. They didn't see you coming. The legs showed up and we had the double push, which, which we'd been practicing for six months and no one knew about. So it, uh, it got us home on that day. That's amazing. And still no one doing it. I can't believe it. I feel like this is, you've just told us all a big secret. Yeah, well, I've tried to tell a lot of people in the sport about it. It's a funny one. Yeah, unless you actually do it, if you just look at it, or if you try to explain it to somebody, it doesn't seem like it's going to help you at all. Unless you actually go out there and experience it and you feel the energy saving in your legs, it looks like nothing. But, you know, but our coach, little Chinese lady, Ann Zhang, she was dead set against it for months when we, fir- when we first unveiled it and told her we wanted to practice it and do it at the Olympics. And eventually we, we brought her around over a long period of time. Really? I've heard stories about this Anzang. We might have to circle back to her. Does it get easier? I mean, this is a silly question. I'm I'm only a small-time, one-time Olympian. You've been to four. Do you get to the fourth and it's a little more relaxing or is it just as nerve-inducing as the first one? Oh, well, I'm not, I'm not sure how um, how you coped with the enormity of the Olympics in, in your first one. That was Vancouver, right? Correct. I mean, that's the best Winter Olympic city of all time. They should just host the Winter Games there every time from from now on and be done with it. Yeah, I remember my first Olympics was Albertville in France and I got distracted by everything. You know, I was I was barely 18 and there was free McDonald's and there was free Magnum ice creams and I could go and play pinball machines all for hours after training. And, yeah, I got distracted by everything. I got this stupid haircut where I had it all shaved around the sides and around the back. And it was like minus 25 there. And, you know, of course, you come down with a cold and 
you're just not playing the percentages. And as time goes on, you you certainly get smarter as, you know, you probably learn all of those lessons after your first Olympics and you, and you show up with a different mindful mess in your second one. <laughs> well said. The distractibility in in, uh, in the first round, I have to admit, got me too. The free vending machines, the food courts, it's like Disneyland for athletes and Olympians. Yeah, and, you know, you probably remember one of the highlights of your first games is when you get your Olympic kit. You know, you basically get this whole wardrobe of stuff and it's all Carbon is the major sponsor for the Australian Winter Olympic team now and the gear is just incredible quality and you're getting all this amazing snow gear and you, you feel like a kid in a candy store and, you know, you rock up at the Olympic Village and all your fresh threads and you get a little bit too excited and it's easy to easy to, to not focus on the, the task that you've trained a lot of your life for and the last thing you want to do is is leave an Olympic Games with regrets because you got distracted by things that maybe did or maybe didn't impact on your performance. But if you didn't go well, then your mind starts to play tricks on you. You start to think, well, maybe those few extra hamburgers that I ate at Macca's, maybe I could have skated half a kilo lighter and the result might have been fractionally better. Probably wouldn't have, but mind plays tricks. So you don't, you don't want to have to leave an Olympics with any regrets left behind. You don't. It's those one percenters that count and that add up. So you definitely don't want that that doubt in your mind. So take us back to the very beginning. For those of you who are not involved in winter sports, being on the Australian Winter Olympic team was kind of like being on the Jamaican bobsled team back in the day. So how did you get introduced to ice skating coming from Brisbane? Australia, for the most part, through its journey, at the Winter Games, you know, I'm talking 50s, 60s, 70s, most of those athletes, a lot of those athletes that went weren't medal contenders in an Olympic field, for want of a better term, they were numbers fillers. But not all of them, you know. We had serious medal contenders, most of them being speed skaters. Steph, not that I'm being biased, but uh, <laughs> Colin Coates was our, was our first uh, top 10 athlete. He got a, he got a sixth place in the 10,000 metres. And then we had another speed skater, Danny Carr, who got a 10th in, in Calgary in 88. And then there was Kirsty Marshall, who went in as the favourite for Albertville 92. You know, so we had some incredible athletes. You know, Karen Rim in the biathlon got an 8th in Lillehammer. And it's been a long, long time since Australian athletes at the Winter Games were numbers fillers. And, you know, that's ancient history. And we come from a, a sunburned country. We're not supposed to be good in the Winter Olympics, yet these days we are. And for me, you know, I, I first got into the sport through my dad. Uh, he was the national champion in the sport a couple of times back in the 60s. And in his day, it, it was more of a, I suppose, a, a popular pastime. When I was a little kid in, in Sydney, there was six speed skating clubs across five different ice rinks in Sydney. And probably 250 to 300 speed skaters in Sydney alone. And, you know, my parents met in an ice rink. That's what No way. Do back in the day before now our kids just sit there and they do this all the time on their phone. Yeah, just <laughs> sitting on their phones. It's very different. Yeah, which is what mine do. But in my parents' day, you know, people used to go and you go to the ice rink on a Saturday night to try and pick up a chick. And, and, and that was roller skating. It was squash. It was tennis. It was 10-pin bowling. 
you know, you do all these things in the capital cities, whereas nowadays real estate's too expensive and kids don't probably have enough exposure to sport as a social activity in the cities as what I did in my day. You're a bit younger than me, Steph, so you might be caught in the middle there somewhere. Similar. <laughs> but you touched on your your dad and your parents having such an influence. My dad also took up snowboarding in the 80s and then it sort of became our thing together after that. So I think it's so nice when there's a, a family influence. And you mentioned your kids. You've got three kids, is that right? Yeah. Oh, so your dad was a snowboarder in the 80s. Still a snowboarder now at 70. Uh, did he have like hair halfway down his back? <laughs> he used to wear those long beanies down to the ground, you know. Horrible. But your kids, are they into ice skating? It's a pretty lonely existence in, in this country. And okay. Yeah, it's, it, it's become such a specialised sport these days, which most sports have done. A lot of sports, probably more so when they first come onto the Olympic program, first time in, they're a little bit weaker. You've got your guys in the top five, top six in the world, whatever it is, and then the gap is, you know, it, it's quite big once you get down past the top ten. But as a sport matures, you know, to get into the into the top thirty in the world now in speed skating, you got to have, you know, you talked about the one percenters before. I talk about one percenters a lot when I do corporate presentations these days, and one percenters are expensive, Steph. You've got like after training these days, you've got ice bars, you've got video, you've got nutrition, you've got massage, physiotherapy, just psychiatrist, and all these people get paid, but the athlete still doesn't get paid in this country. And I don't get it. People on the dole get paid, but yeah, you know, we've got it. We've got an Olympics coming up in 2032. It's about time our Olympians started getting a little bit of that uh, taxpayer coin, I reckon. Could not agree more. Could not agree more. That post-production, as we call it, or the post-athletic production is, um, it takes a team, like you said, and it's not cheap to uh, stay at the top of your game these days. It isn't, yeah, but uh, your dad got you on a snowboard at how old? I was late to the game. It sounds young now, but 11, I took up snowboarding. So late to take up professional snowboarding later than that. He must have been one of the first to ever do it in Australia. He was, yeah. He um, was one of the first to jump on a board the minute it came out here and he just loved it. He'd done a bit of surfing, so there was a lot of crossovers. and The snowboarders when, when they first came in, didn't they? Yes. Hated. Hasn't it shifted now? Like you said, big shift in our industry in many ways. We've seen a lot of it over the years. But, I mean, you touched on performance then and you touched on what it takes to be an athlete at the top level these days. I think the best performers in the world are those that can perform under pressure. So what would you say one of your biggest pressure cooker moments are for you in sport but also in, in life? Well, the biggest pressure cooker moment I've had was, well, definitely recently, Steph, was about a year and a half ago. I was teaching my son to surf on the Sunshine Coast. Uh, it was two and a half metre waves. We were in the reform, big waves out the back. Waves have already broken, you know, a bit of a flatter section then little one-and-a-half-footers breaking through onto the beach on the inside. He had a big foamy. I was teaching him to surf, and I glanced out the back and I saw what I thought was a log, and then I realised it wasn't a log. It was it was a head. And whoever was out there, it was rough. It was wild. It wasn't a place where somebody would be swimming, especially on a two-and-a-half-metre swell, and instantly able to – straight back into Olympic mode and I just didn't think I just acted 
and I, I got my son to take the leg rope off and I told him to run to the lifeguards. I got on his seven-foot foamy and paddled out. I got out there and I got to within about 10 metres of this girl and she saw me and without saying anything, her face said, please help me, I'm going to die. And I'd, I'd never seen anybody's face look like that before in my life. So I paddled closer to her and just before I got to her, I realised that there was, there was three more heads out the back right in the impact zone getting smashed. And I got her up onto the board. Her name was Zoe and turned it around, made the call that I couldn't rescue them all at once. So paddled her in, turn around, paddle back out again. No way. Three. And one of them was hyperventilating. Another, the second one had taken in water. And the third girl was actually a really strong swimmer. She was out there trying to calm the other two down. They'd, they'd gotten sucked out in a rip swimming where they shouldn't be. And so I got to them all and they were all scrambling to get on the board. So I had three of them on the board with me hanging off the back trying to kick. And You're I was like, kidding. Paddle left, right, left, right, all paddle together. We're going to catch the next wave. But, you know, it was two metres of white water and we were all too heavy and we just got smashed about 10 times in a row. And I was going to have to take them in one at a time, but then the lifeguard showed up and they got the two girls into the rubber ducky that were in trouble. And I got the third girl who was the strong swimmer. I got her on the front of the board and we paddled, caught the next wave, got in and and the uh, the pressure cooker moment, as you described it, from that moment was over. But, yeah, Zoe, the girl I rescued first, as soon as I got into the beach, she comes running up to me and she hugged me harder than anyone's ever hugged me and she said, thank you for saving my life. And I went weak at the knees. I just sit down for about 20 minutes and the ambulance showed up. The girl that had taken in water, they had her on oxygen and she still wasn't able to control her breath, but everybody got saved. It was a, it was a good news story. And when that pressure cooker moment arrived, this body could still go. You were able to still flick the switch. I can imagine you've just saved four people's lives and then the adrenaline running through your body when that would have worn off. That would have been such an overwhelming moment for you. Yeah, the adrenaline was, it was incredible. You know, if I had to paddle like that without that adrenaline, I would have been knackered after about three minutes. But even after I got into the shore, I wasn't tired. It was just, it's incredible what that adrenaline running through your veins can can do for your uh, your performance. <laughs> your system. So how do you collect your thoughts? How do you stay mindful in those pressure cooker moments? Well, that one, it just went, I just went into autopilot and I described it as going back into Olympic mode. I, I don't know if that's accurate, but how you stay mindful in a pressure cooker moment is the Olympics is through all the years of preparation that you've done because you're very, very good at it. Anybody who shows up to a pressure situation without having done the preparation, of course they're going to lose it in their head because they're not good. And the other people around them are going to kick their ass. But uh, that doesn't happen very often in the Olympics because everybody's very good by the time you get to the Olympic Games. And, you know, it's the same in business, in, in life. Preparation is the answer to being able to stay in the zone. Well said. It is. You are in the zone, isn't it? It's a state that you kind of go into, like you said, that uh, Olympic state. Yeah. And, you know, confidence comes from preparation and, and building your abilities in something too. Exactly. It pisses me off these days when uh, when my kids come home from school with a participation certificate. I mean, <laughs> participation is bullshit. I mean, it's not. If you're six, seven, eight years of age, 
that's where you start. You start with participating. But, you know, by the time kids' ages are double figures, they all just want to know who won, right? And you don't want to extract that competitiveness, that will to win out of your kids. You've got to teach your kids to at least want to win. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, your name is synonymous with luck and not my words, but overnight success. But you've had a a 16-year career. You've suffered multiple life-threatening injuries in the lead up to your Olympic glory moment. So can you share with us some of the pressures and the struggles that you had to deal with to to manage that that long-standing career in the lead up to what some would say is an overnight success? (laughs) Yeah, I I got impaled on the back of another guy's blade. I had 131 stitches in my leg. So that was earlier in my career when I was 21 and still had a lot of unfinished business. But 18 months before I got the gold, I went headfirst into the barrier in training and broke my neck. Had a halo brace screwed into my skull for two and a half months. And that was where I had a lot of time to think about what I'd done in my sporting career and and what I potentially still had ahead of me. And I had three world championship medals by that point, a gold, a silver, and a bronze. I had an Olympic bronze, part of the real team. And uh, everyone coming to visit me in hospital with that halo brace screwed into my head was telling me I was done. You're kidding. Going again, and I just went to another doctor. I love that. In my head, I had I had eighteen months to go until the next Olympics. After that halo base was removed, I had sixteen months. Sixteen months out of fourteen years. That's not a lot. In my head, I have to do it. Firstly, I'm a bloke. I'm not real good at multitasking. The only <laughs> thing I'm real good at in this world is speed skating, and that's not the most popular pastime in Australia. But that's what the Bradbury family did, and that's what I was still one of the best in the world at. So. To go back and start something else from scratch, for me, that was no option. I mean, I have to see this through and have one last crack at the Olympic Games. You know, and there's no question that I'm the I'm the luckiest individual Olympic gold medalist in sporting history. I mean, there might be there might be Olympic swimmers that got a gold who swam the heats only, and then they brought in the good guys and they got given a gold because they swam in the heats that were arguably lucky. But anyway, you mentioned the heats. You, you guys have uh, heats, quarters, and finals in, in snowboard cross. Correct. And in fact, there's heats, quarters, semis, finals. So, you know, I had to get through the, the first three rounds before I got to the, the final and had the whole world fall over in front of me. But uh, there's no question that I was incredibly lucky that night. But I was also the guy who put himself in position to capitalize when things went wrong for the competition. And no one else can say they were there. We spoke about my, my coach, little Chinese lady. So, Prior to the final, I was my heart was starting to get into it a little bit, and your heart doesn't really factor into calculating a race strategy. You know, I kind of liken it to. I bet you've had this happen to you, Steph. Someone sends you an email, really pisses you off, and you go, "Send," and then you go, "Oh fuck, how do I get that out of the computer?" Uh, (laughs) A reactive response that probably shouldn't have happened, and uh, your brain wasn't involved. So, you know, my heart was telling me before the final that. Maybe I could find something special, but fortunately I had my coach there to put me in my place, so she told me to forget that. Go out there in the final, the others are going to make a mistake and we're going to get a bronze medal. She did not say that. So that was the strategy, was to stay out of the way and pick up a bronze. Neither of us ever imagined that it would be better than a bronze, but in the change room prior to the final, if someone had said, you don't have to skate, Steve, we'll give you the bronze, I'd take that in a, in a heartbeat. You're kidding. So I can't imagine how you go from, in your mind, 
thinking that you're not going to, you making the podium would be the ultimate result to then crossing the finish line and knowing you're taking the gold. Well, not not knowing. We had to wait for the- uh, <laughs> Not knowing immediately. The wait for the 16,500 Americans in the crowd to stop booing because uh, Apollo Ono, the gold medal favourite, was in the pile-up and as I'd crossed the line, most people have seen the look on my face. It, it says, oh, my God, I've just won, but it also says, oh, hang on a minute. We've got to wait until the judges decide what's going to happen here. Possibly they're going to skate the race again. Fortunately, they didn't. I was up watching it live and I remember watching that exact moment where I feel like every Australian was with you saying, do we throw our hands up? Do, do we not? What do we do? Like our, our hearts were in our throats for you in that moment. Yeah, well, yeah, it was uh, an incredible way to finish and a lot of athletes put in just as much hard work as I did in a sporting career in whatever sport for just as long and and didn't get to walk away with the ultimate prize at the end and a lot of them deserved it just as much as what I did. So, you know, that's where I think a bit of the luck comes into it. I think in that moment when you go to stand on that podium, no one can can be in your head right then, but you've just shared with us that you had 100 and how many stitches through your leg? 131. And I read that you lost four litres of blood in that moment. Is that true? Yeah, 3.95 to be exact. But Sorry, 3.95. Let's, <laughs> let's, <laughs> for the purpose of the exercise, let's round it up to four litres of blood. Then you're in a neck brace less than a year and a half out from the Games. Your own doctor has told you not to compete or that you won't skate again. Your own family aren't even in the support of that decision. So surely after all of that work and everything that you have put your your mind, your body, and like you mentioned, your heart on the line that many times for that many years, surely you stand on the podium in that moment and go, it's not just luck. Yeah, yeah. The the podium moment was, that was mine. Um, a minute and a half there where there was still 16,500 people there in the stands. There was about 50 Aussies that were cheering really loud. Some of the Americans were clapping because Apollo Ono got the silver. You know, he and Matthew Turcott, the Canadian who got the bronze, they both congratulated me, which was bigger than them. And there was a minute, minute and a half or so there when they played the national anthem where I couldn't hear anybody. It was, that was just my minute and a half. So that was where uh, all of those controversial moments of how I'd won it were eliminated from my brain. And you just stepped up there and took it. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you, if you Google it, it's, uh, it looks like I'd, I'd rather be, uh, hiding behind the barrier somewhere the way I, I stepped up on the podium and, yeah, I looked very sheepish about going out there and, yeah, I, I still see why that was the case. And uh, there was there was a moment where I'd gotten off the ice after the race and the jumbotron in there because it was the Utah Jazz home NBA team home court converted into an ice rink for the, for the Winter Olympics and oh, the jumbotron after the race had come up with my name and the gold medal next to it. And I knew that was the official result. And I just sort of looked up, not at the roof, not up to God or anything, but it was just a, a moment where there was a, a big weight lifted from my shoulders. And, you know, all of those 14 to 16 years of very hard work that I put myself through, even though it was probably only the last two years of it that actually felt physically very hard because when you're young and you're, improving it's easy to recover from lactic acid and hard work and you're back up the next day and you feel great but 
you know, the last couple of years in the, in the lead up to Salt Lake City, that was where the body wasn't recovering anymore, but the mind wasn't prepared to let it go just yet. I love that. So when the mind is is not prepared to give up and body must follow. <laughs> body must follow. What strategies, what practices have helped you either I want to think now or back then. So you've got these two moments I, I really want to talk about because it sounds like that your head and your heart have led you in some very strong moments in your life. So we've got your mindset, I guess, during your recovery, throughout those life-threatening injuries. And then we've got your mindset and your perspective on the sport after that winning moment. If you could share both. I used to have a sign taped to the ceiling in my bedroom. It read, this is the Olympics, get up. Wow, I love that. That was the first thing I saw every morning at, at half past four when my alarm was going on. How and old were you? Put that sign up there when I was 15 because, uh, yeah, from, from when I was 15, I knew that I was going to the Olympics. My dad had given me a flogging for a few years before that and he, uh, he enabled me to to get to the world championships where I saw the sport internationally and I watched this skater from Japan, last name Kawasaki, same as the motorbike. I watched him pass three guys on the outside, break the world record and get the gold medal in a 1,000 metres. I was the reserve on the Australian team at 15. From that moment, I knew that I was going to the Olympics more than once. It was about where I was going to finish from that point. And so that's when the, the sign went up on the ceiling because I knew that all the other guys were getting up. And if I didn't get up, I've got to live with that regret. And I still try and use that sort of concept these days to, to stay positive because life isn't exciting anymore. You know, you're not, your Olympic career is over, Steph. You, you don't get to go and compete against the best people in the world and see where you finish. No, I've got to get the kids out of bed. I've got to get them to brush their teeth, eat their breakfast, pack the lunch, drop them off at school, and I don't get a fucking trophy for it. <laughs> you know, so, sometimes I'll think I deserve one, but. You know, so my wife won't let me stick the side on the ceiling anymore. She says it'll take off the paint. But uh, <laughs> but I, it's I in your mind. It lives on. I have a little sign next to the bed that says family first because a lot of days I've got to get out of my own head because when you're an Olympian, you're kind of selfish. You know, it's all about you. The team's there to support you. Okay, you're going to do your best today, Steph. We're here to help you do it. But when you've got kids, it's the other way around. You know, you gotta you gotta take yourself out of your own head. I know there's gonna be time for me at some point, but uh I gotta put them first. So that's that's kind of how I think they call it a visual cue, that little sign I used to have on the on the ceiling. And yeah, I still I still try and use that sort of thing because most of us are guilty of getting stuck in routine too often. And we need the little reminders to keep ourselves tracking towards the goals and the things that we want to achieve in our lives. Beautifully said. So you've shared a couple of them, but what are some of the the parallels or I guess direct les- lessons in the rink or, or the oval to lessons you have today in life? Well, one thing that I want to I instill in my kids is that I think the 21st century demands an expert. Your dad is a snowboarder back in the 80s. My dad is a speed skater back in the 60s and 70s. And you know, my dad, he fixed the car. He painted the house. He and he's always building stuff and he's putting engines together and he mows the lawn, he washes the car and, you know, there's, there's nothing that he couldn't do. But he, 
he never became an expert at one particular thing. Even speed skating, you know, he was the national champion a couple of times, but for him it was more of a, a regular hobby rather than, okay, this is what I'm going for and I'm doing nothing else. And that's what I did with speed skating. I put all my, all of my eggs into one basket, which left me vulnerable because I didn't really have a backup plan. But I don't know how many people have got enough eggs in their basket to do more than one thing, you know, and that's what I'm going to try and instill in my kids is that whatever you've got a bit of passion for, just do that all the time. Get really good at it and then you should have enough money in life to be able to pay someone else to mow the lawn and wash the car. <laughs> that's beautiful. I think we should all learn from that. It's true. We don't put enough of our energy into the things that mean the most to us sometimes. The things we're best at, we usually make the most money from too, right? Well said. Uh, you know, you get sidetracked on doing something else that you're not that good at and it takes you three times as long because you suck at it. But you, <laughs> you do it anyway and the reward is very small. Mate, in, in my life now, Steph, I, I compare that like I spend hours trying to get people to buy a carton of my beer, you know. <laughs> and it makes me 10 bucks if I'm lucky and I can go and, I can go and do a motivational presentation at a conference, you know, swan in and swan out in an hour and make lots and lots of money. But anyway. <laughs> I think it would be remiss of me not to ask you, you know, we'll get in into the beer conversation, but how does it feel to be in the Dictionary of Australian Colloquialisms? You know, do, do you ever personally use the expression doing a Bradbury? <laughs> uh, no, I do not. I definitely will not, but I am. <laughs> I am incredibly proud of it. It was put into the Macquarie Dictionary in 2014. Oh, my goodness. It's uh, it's now now there for eternity. And, you know, whilst it gets used in a lot of different contexts, some of them purely around luck, people understand that you don't wind up at the Olympic Games, let alone in the final at the Olympic Games, because – you're strapped on a snowboard or you're strapped on a pair of speed skates a couple of weeks earlier. And, you know, that's that's the real meaning of, of doing a Bradbury is that you you put yourself in position to capitalise when your opportunity presents itself. And people that never put themselves in a position because they haven't worked hard enough or long enough at anything in their whole life, they're never going to put themselves in a position to, what's that saying called? I've forgotten. <laughs> Do a Bradbury. <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well said. I mean, I remember when we were, were knocking off from uh, a commentary shift at the last Olympics and you threw me a cold beer at the end of the night and I looked down and I thought, there is no better name for a beer company other than Last Man Standing. <laughs> <laughs> it's what you're sipping on today while you're looking back at me on the screen. I love it. Yeah, well, it was, it was a fairly obvious name for the beer. We've got the uh, – we've got the – the hair and the tortoise on the logo, so it's a little bit take the piss out of myself, but it's also about uh, about it's got alcohol in it. Obviously, this is our mid strength, so three point five. <laughs> but uh, you don't want to go too hard too early and make an idiot of yourself. You got to pace yourself perfectly and be the last one standing. You know, so there's kind of a double meaning in there as well. In as far as how much you have to drink, but also in life, is that you got to put yourself in the position and be there. I love that the beer is about obviously a, a genuine love of beer, which is so Australian, but great mates. And you've you've built this company with a couple of your best mates. Is that right? 
yeah, yeah, we are we are still very good mates. Although now that you work together, sometimes you you get on each other's nerves a little <laughs> bit. I mean, you sound like the most motivated person that any of us could meet, and you've spoken in in how many countries? How many times in how many countries? I want to check this number is correct. Fifteen hundred conferences and events in twenty three countries. Oh wow. So I know my way around the stage like I used to know my way around the ice rink. <laughs> <laughs> That's where that single-mindedness of becoming very good at one thing has crossed from skating into what I can now do on a corporate stage. And after I realised that there was potentially a career in it because after the gold medal, everyone said, oh, Steve, what are you going to do? You're getting paid to go and speak at a conference, an event here or there, and at this point I wasn't very good at it, but I was still getting paid. And everyone said, oh, what are you going to do? Because that's not going to last long. And then I started learning about event management companies, speaker bureaus, and I sat down with a couple of people that kind of knew what they were talking about in the industry, and they said, Steve, if you get good at this, you can do it for the rest of your life. And so I thought, well, geez, if I do this, I don't have to start from the bottom. Firstly, I'm telling a lot of my Olympic story that I've already got in the bank from the last 20 years. Then I've just got to learn how to adapt that into a corporate environment. You know, these days I've added a bit of stand-up comedy into my show as well. I don't do comedy, but I'm pretty good at standing up. Get it, Steph? I see what you did there. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but, you know, so I started working after those. I started working with a professional speechwriter and a comedian and, and I put what was a pretty good hour corporate package that I could roll out on any stage in the world you know, and regularly get a standing ovation. And over time, I've adapted that, that into doing as a safety speaker, talking about risk versus reward in the workplace, teamwork, and a bit along the comedy lines and emceeing and facilitating conferences too. To finish up today, I just wanted to ask you what a couple of the following words mean to you now in this part of your life, in the context of your personal life or even your professional pursuits, which we've touched on today? The first word is luck. I think we've already done that, I think, across this. uh, (laughs) We don't believe in luck. Luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Oh, I love that. Determination. Determination gets uh, confused these days in with the the most popular word in the English language, resilience. (laughs) (laughs) Used to be called passion, persistence, and determination. I love it. Which, it comes back to how how much you want it. If you have a setback and you give up, then you didn't want it enough or it wasn't the right course for you. But uh, if you want it enough, then the determination will see you through. Second last word, teamwork. Teamwork is, you know, I've talked a bit about my team. You know, you no doubt had a a team behind you in snowboarding as well. And I think often Aussies are pretty shit at sharing with each other what we're good at. Do you agree with that? Well said. Yeah. Most Aussies got that tall poppy stuff in us. I got it in me too. And I think part of tall poppy, sometimes it says, I can't help someone without being asked because I might get called a show off. So we're not like Americans, are we? Americans love telling each other what they're good at. It's true. Because of that. Whereas we say, oh, no, I can't help. can't help someone else. If I help them without being asked, I might get called a show off. But if you help someone 
and they beat you because you helped them. That's not showing off. That's karma. And I think in the long term, in the long run, you get back what you put out. And I wish I had that kind of mindset back in my skating days because, you know, when I was younger, all I wanted to do was beat all the other Aussies and be the national champion. Whereas it wasn't really about who was the national champion. It was about where we finish when we go and compete against the rest in the world. And if I could have helped one of those guys be better in the world, even if they beat me, that would have felt pretty bloody good. But in my skating days, I I didn't have that sort of mindset. I think that leads us beautifully into the last word, glory. I don't know. i got nothing for that, Steph. What do you think glory is? (laughs) I I can't think of anything that would stand out for you on that one. I think it's personal. Right? I don't think glory can look the same to everybody. Glory for me when it comes to uh, my skating career was in Salt Lake City in the Winter Olympics in the 1,000 metres. In the quarterfinal, I beat a guy from Canada by the name of Mark Gagnon, four-time world champ. Hadn't beaten that prick for eight years. (laughs) Yes. And that that got me through to the semifinals and then they all fell over. So, yeah, that was my moment of glory in my head anyway. Gold medal has nothing to do with it. I love it. Steve, I could talk to you all day, but finally, we finish with all of our guests with taking a bit of a beat. So a forced moment of mindfulness, if you will, where we focus our awareness on what we're sensing and feeling in this moment. And if we were to do that, would you mind sharing with me yours? Moment of mindfulness. I need to go and buy my wife some flowers because I haven't bought a f- flowers for Way too long. <laughs> That's beautiful. Did you need a moment of mindfulness to remember that? Yeah, I probably did. Um, yeah, you know, we got three kids, so, you know, it kind of becomes a pass the parcel competition sometimes. Who's doing this? Who's going where? Is it? it is. And like you said earlier, sometimes maybe we all need a medal for that too. Yeah. Stephen, it's always um, so uplifting when we cross paths. You're genuine humour and joy and um, this positive outlook that you have is so infectious. And to everyone that doesn't know your full story, thank you for sharing. It's beyond inspiring. I can't thank you enough for joining me today on Mindful Mess. No worries. Thanks, Steph. Thanks for having me. See ya. Hope to see you again soon. Thanks so much for joining me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Mindful Mess. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and share from your favourite podcast platform. Mindful Mess is proudly sponsored by Medibank. You're only human and what an incredible human you are.